0: my group in Davis just the other day. Doubt is a, um, and and we're still exploring this, so there's some, I'm going to look for some uh, investigation as well. Doubt is not a hugely popular topic of of Dharma talks, and yet it's pretty important. It's one of the fetters. It's it's, uh, uh, one of the hindrances. Um, and it usually gets presented in ter- as, a, as a hindrance um, in terms of we have uh, doubt in the tradition or we have doubt in our ability to uh, fulfill the practice. And it's not a lot of exploration, a bit beyond that. But doubt is, is actually pretty important. Um, and there are a couple of different meanings for it. That we've uncovered, um, and so it's not always clear what we're talking about. So, for for example, doubt often means don't believe. I don't believe. I doubt it. I doubt that the moon is made of green cheese. You know, I don't believe that the moon is. So, on 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 the one hand, we we have uh, not be, uh, disbelief and belief. That's that's. Uh, uh, and, and often doubt is, is interpreted by us as um, belief or disbelief in some kind of proposition. You know, um, the moon is made of green cheese. The sky is blue. You believe or disbelieve that the sky is blue. Um, and that, that meaning is, is pretty common. But, there, but the word that, is, uh, the, that uh, is doubt as a fetter, that we, we translate as a fetter, is vichikicha, which is a kind of skeptical doubt, which is not so much disbelief as not knowing what to believe. So we just don't know. And this, it underlines um, a particular aspect of our knowing, the, that has to do with objectivity and subjectivity. We want some security in this world. We're looking for some security, some sta- safety, some stability. We want to know what we can depend on. We're looking for something objective, something that's not dependent on our perception of it. We want something real, something permanent. We're looking for that, something to hold on to, to believe in. And of course, we know from, from the Buddha's teachings that there's nothing that's solid. That's that, but that doesn't mean we don't want it, and that we don't keep looking for it. But the inability to find any place of security is, leaves us insecure. So doubt, we don't even want to address it. So we, we have this tendency to want some objective knowledge, understanding, that we won't doubt. <coughs> but there's some things that are, you know, objectivity and subjectivity. Peter Jennings um, once said, it's hard to, it's hard to s- footnote something that went by on TV, but he said at one point, um, I heard him say, Objectivity means different things to different people. and And it's true what What you will accept as as uh, something independent. I mean, there are people who believe in all kinds of supernatural beings um, and and firmly believe. Objectively, they believe it's an objective fact. Well, what Peter Jennings is suggesting is that objectivity is a subjective experience. That in our experience, some kinds of knowledge we feel is dependable, is independent, and some kinds of knowledge, not so much. And I think the Buddha is pointing at the subjective experience. He's not making claims about objectivity. You know, he's, he's talking about his own insight into the nature of his understanding. Hmm. I'll give you an example. We can always, we can always be certain we don't have to have doubt about our subjective experience. We can know it. But we, you know, let me use an example. The Dalai Lama is, was identified because as a child of eight, he was able to, well, there were a bunch of signs that pointed to this one child, and he was able to recognize the glasses that he wore in his previous incarnation. And when he selected those glasses, he was recognized as the Dalai Lama, and here he is today. So what do you think of that? You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Often we let things like this sort of hover out there, and it's a, but it's a quantum moment when you go to measure it, it's, you either believe it or you don't believe it. And you believe it or don't believe it. Maybe you don't know whether to believe it or not believe it. Maybe you genuinely don't know. There's not. I'm not looking for a right answer here. I'm looking to investigate to sort of explore your own relationship to this. So you might not know whether that whole, you know, story is. but you, might be, you, you can be certain you don't know, if you don't know. You, know. you can know when you don't know. So even when you're not, I mean, your subjective experience can be <laughs> one of uncertainty, and that's fine. You know, there, there are, uh, Zen Master Sung San used to say, only don't know don't make a metaphysical claim you know he also said that you know the buddha on the moment of the morning of his awakening saw the morning star and absolutely believed his experience our problem is sometimes we don't know when to believe our experience <laughs> you know the buddha says mindfulness meditation is the direct path to full awakening. What do you think? Are you confident in it or not? One of the things that's interesting about about doubt, doubt in the sense of sort of a a state of uncertainty, is that it's, its opposite would be faith, not belief and disbelief. So there's... Doubt in the sense of don't believe, disbelief. The opposite of that is belief. Then there's uncertainty and faith. there's there's uh, doubt and and uh, and faith, the word in Pali, Pali is the language that uh, the Buddhist teachings were recorded in and seems to approach or is thought to approach the language he spoke. Um, The word is sadha, and it's translated often as faith. But again, faith, you know, we mean, do you believe this proposition? Faith is a heart quality as well. And we miss that heart quality. It's translated sometimes as confidence, trust or lack of trust. So as a as a hard quality, doubt is uncertain. You know we don't we don't really like uncertainty. But there are, you know, how how do you feel certain, confident in the sun will set in the east in the west tonight? The sun will set in the east. Feel confident? It's it's a there's you know, there's a feeling to it, it's almost tactile, as well as a conceptual agreement. So it's a mind and a heart thing. Doubt and sadha. confidence, faith. <laughs> faith usually means in this culture, means believing something. Just because, or I'm not sure why. Why do we believe? Well, the Buddha would say we believe, we, we project lifetimes into the future because we don't want to die. So we project a heaven or multiple births, some way to, to keep the immortality project going. What I'd like to do is to explore some of some of this in terms of teachings that are present in the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is the collection of texts that are recorded in the Pali language that and the earliest texts were recorded um, in collections called Nikayas. And they are presented to us as the teachings of the Buddha. It's a bookshelf, it's like this, it's huge. Uh, collections of these of these texts. And they all come to us and, and and in in some contexts we are encouraged to accept them as they are. These are the teachings of the Buddha. They were recited shortly after the Buddha's death and passed down genera- generation after generation and here here they are, you know, stories of of uh, from the time of the Buddha. And these are the stories that we You know, if we pick and choose, we'll pick the stuff we like. We won't pick the stuff we don't like. And, uh, you know, there's some wisdom there. But I kind of think often of the Pali Canon as, well, of the teachings of the Buddhas. They come to us as the result of a 2,500-year game of telephone. (laughs) You know, from generation to generation to generation around the table. And what comes out at the end is... Not what, went, what, what started. So, in the context of our relationship with the Dharma, the issue is: what do we, what, what of the teachings that come to us are worth it, and, and worth it is a feeling of confidence, a feeling of faith, or. Lack of doubt, when we, you know, when we act on something, we are acting not out of doubt. You know. Which ones are worth it and which ones set it to set aside? And how would we know? How would we recognize? Well, let me just, let me just um, read, one, read a few passages and see what your reactions are. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya, the collection of middle-length discourses. I heard this and learned this from the Blessed One's own lips. As soon as the Bodhisatta was born, he stood firmly with his feet on the ground. Then he took seven steps facing north and with a white parasol held over him, he surveyed each quarter and uttered the words of the leader of the herd, I am the highest in the world. I am the best in the world. I am the foremost in the world. This is my last birth. Now there is no renewal of being for me. This, I remember, is a wonderful and marvelous quality from the Blessed One. What do you think? <laughs> well, you know, it's, inter- it's interesting because we, uh, you know, it's right in there in the canon. Are we picking and choosing? <coughs> so we may already be picking and choosing. And so if we are, well then let's, be, let's try to be as clear as we can. Let's see if we can articulate the bases on which we make our choices. Just for the purposes of, I don't know, self-understanding. So how come you all giggle? No confidence in that is... I'm sorry. Standing, walking, talking at birth. <laughs> white parasol. White parasol. Well, the white parasol is probi- is possibly credible. The standing and walking. Yeah, please. But it's more important than whether or not it's credible or not. I don't even think it's important. I mean, so that's where my doubt comes in. My doubt doesn't even matter on that. Well, here's an interesting thing. What what was the Buddha presenting? He was saying, you know, usually when a prophet appears. They claim some transcendent authority. It is written, but I say unto you, you know, as there's some engagement with some transcendental, like, you know, God wrote these uh, on, you know, these tablets, I bring them, you know, from. But the Buddha, you know, the Buddha said, hey, I had an insight. Pretty cool, huh? You know, so his followers, the people who were impressed, Trying to promote the Buddha. Well, you know, how do you promote the Buddha? What there's a there's a great um, sutta in the Digha where where the Buddha goes back over the history of the Buddhas in the past, and you know, this this um, some scholars suggest that that this kind of iteration is an e- effort to try to root the Buddha in some tradition. You know, there were Dipankara Buddha was eons before, and there's Maitreya Buddha in the future. Is part of some transcendent thing, so it may not matter to us, but you know, stories of divine qualities. You know, my guru is at least as big as your guru. Uh, it was, you know, is important in the in the uh, in the context. So you know, there's I can I can I have a. A reason, But the reason, when I look closely at why I find this, well, we all find it laughable, but it's because we have confidence in a whole other set of understandings. So there's faith already in another set of understandings, and this is just not in accord with that. So we find our, our, you know, we have this set of understandings that we don't doubt that puts in doubt some things that are, are discordant. The other thing that, that uh, we use is, that we believe, is our subjective experience. You know, if you take a bite of a banana, you can be pretty sure, even if you don't see it, that it's not a zucchini. You know, just personal experience, just direct experience. So the, there are a couple, there are other kinds of <coughs> passages. Let me just read you, this one, this is um, uh, interesting, by the way, that, that, that first passage. The word bodhisattva, uh, Gil Fronstall, who's a uh, Pali scholars, some of you may know, um, says the word bodhisattva didn't exist at the time of the Buddha. It it came into existence with with the Mahayana, some hundreds of years later. So, um, <coughs> you know, when the when the bodhisattva was born, this is the Buddha in the Nikaya. The Buddha says, it is the rule that when a bodhisattva has entered his mother's womb, his mother becomes by nature virtuous, refraining from taking life, from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from lying speech, or from strong drink and sloth producing, producing drugs. That is the rule. It's in the canon, right there. Attributed to the Buddha, CNN on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, bodhisattva was not a term that the Buddha could have used, so somehow there's How about this one from, from the Majjhima? Soon after they had left, he's, the Buddha was, uh, Saraputta was paying a visit to Pindika, who was a, a patron of the Buddhas, a merchant, a very successful uh, kind of merchant, who was in the process of dying. And uh, Soon after they had left, the householder Pindika died and reappeared in the Tusita heaven. Well, the died part, sort of, <coughs> the two seat to heaven, how do, you, how do you hold that? It's not like it's right or wrong, because it may, be, it may be helpful, it may be functional, it may work in terms of your understanding of things. The two-seat to heaven. It's not quite the same thing as a walking and talking newborn. What do you What do you think? What's two-seat heaven? It's um, there are thirty-three heaven realms. It's one of them. So I think it's interesting to to relate to the. uh, there's a, the story when the Buddha dies, his last words, strive on, all things are impermanent, get on with it. And then the description is, he closes his eyes and he, he puts his mind through the various states of jhana absorption. And everybody's standing there looking at him and Ananda says, gee, I, I guess the, he's gone. And Anuruddha, who's one of the Buddha's other cousins, said, no, no, he's off in the realm of neither perception or not perception. And then the Buddha goes back down to the first jhana and then up to the fourth jhana and then he dies. How would you know that? And the answer that's that's given by the tradition is that Anuruddha could read minds. How do we feel about that? You know, we some of us have have feelings about ESP and and experiences that are unexplained, unexplainable. We can certainly subjectively know when we don't know. And we can know what we're confident of. And I think it's it's what's important is for us to be able to recognize what what we what we believe and what we don't and and the basis for those decisions this <coughs> from the majima here student is the buddha talking some woman or man is envious. This is, this is a, a, a passage about karma and rebirth. He envies, begrudges, and harbors envy about others' gains, honor, veneration, respect, salutations, and offerings. Due to having performed and completed such karmas, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state of deprivation or in in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. If on the dissolution of the body after death, instead of reappearing in a state of deprivation, he comes to a human state, he is insignificant wherever he is reborn. This is the way that leads to insignificance, that is to say, to be envious, to begrudge and harbor, envy about others, gain honor, veneration, respect, etc., Well, this is a fairly straightforward account of karma and Vipaka, the payoff, the fruit. How does it sound? Does it make sense? I'm sorry? Yeah, it's, the language is confusing. Basically, he's saying one who envies envy will if you envy and and begrudge people then when you are reborn you will become you if you are reborn as a human you will be insignificant wherever you are reborn and you might be reborn in in another destination perdition or hell or something so the idea in our terms would be that envy diminishes you as a person yeah. That's that's a way of understanding it metaphorically. That's 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 a way of of finding some wisdom in there. Yeah. It's it's pretty. It's in a list of 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 uh, specific things that happen as the result of being being greedy, being envious, lying, etc., and very specific consequences. Now, when you turn it into a, a metaphor, then then it becomes it becomes uh, fodder for you know it becomes a basis for an insight. But as a an objective statement, it's different than if we if we hold it subjectively. Isn't it spoken in this way because the ideas are really complex for us to and then we have to. Ah. translate them into metaphors, and metaphors well you know that's an interesting question there are scholars who believe that the meta, that the buddha's teachings were metaphorical that when he that he he was not teaching literal reincarnation when he talked about rebirth that he was talking about the rebirth in an identity that each of us you know so he's talking metaphorically when he talks about past lives on on the night of his awakening, and he he, uh, he reviewed his past lives. I can review my past life. I was a, a, a child, a, a brother. I was a student, a, a teacher, a boss, a you know a father, a grandfather. I, you know, I've got a lot of past lives that I can review. So, if you want to take it literally, then are we looking at? Identities taken up and um, moved on from, or are we looking at? And it's not so much what I'm trying to point at is not so much the truth or falsity of any of these ideas, but but what doubt and faith feel like in our experience. So let me let me read one that's about the same subject matter. But a little different. Anuruddha, he's addressing his cousin. "It's not for the purpose of scheming to deceive people, or for the purpose of flattering people, or for the purpose of gain, honor or renown, that when a disciple has died, I declare his reappearance I declare his reappearance in, in a way such as this. So-and-so was, was, uh, has reappeared in such-and-such such a place, and so-and-so else has reappeared in such-and-such such another place. I do it because there are faithful clansmen, inspired and gladdened by what is lofty, who, when they hear those accounts, direct their minds to lofty states, and that leads to their welfare and happiness for a long time. Feels different. Doesn't it? Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Well, Tony, I think uh, where my mind goes with everything you're saying is the the um, reality that all religious traditions and all cultures have their mythology, and some of the mythology is prescriptive: uh-huh. don't do this, don't do that. And a lot of the mythology is metaphoric mm-hmm. uh, because um, uh, the kind of some of the Transcendent states can't can't be um, really expressed other than uh, a resurrection or you know sea mm-hmm. partying or you know whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, that's a tendency to try to be, you know, educational, try to get uh, you know the prescriptions for life across. Uh-huh. And I think all, all traditions have that. They all they all do. The Buddha was not so much prescriptive though. Uh-huh. The Buddha was pointing well, we, we talked last time I was here a couple weeks ago about how the precepts are, are not rules, do's and don'ts. They're, they're tools for investigation. You know, we say, you know, trans, you, you use the phrase transcendent states can't be described. You can't actually describe the taste of a banana. The taste of a banana is pretty ineffable. If I were to ask you to describe the difference between the sensations of an in-breath and an out-breath, well, you can recognize when you're breathing in pretty easily. But if you try to put it into words, it's, you start talking metaphoric contraction, and tension, and things like that. So our direct experience at the at the various sense doors is ineffable when we try to make a metaphysical statement, a claim about the way things are. Things are this way. Something objective. Then, I mean, and we want that objectivity. We want that stability. We want that certainty. But the tendency then is to cling to statements and effort to make them secure. So he presents, he presents teachings about rebirth because they're inspiring. It's a different meaning. Yeah? Was that also possibly not an attempt to speak in the language that the people he was addressing would understand? Uh, he he did. De- in a cultural context and he needed to speak to people in words that they mm-hmm. understand. Absolutely, yeah. If he started speaking in tongues, nobody would have <laughs> had anything to pass on. We wouldn't know what... Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually going to uh, read... There's a passage where, that I'm going to get to in a little bit where, that directly addresses that. So here's a, here's a different teaching from the, from the Scriptures. From the Sudenipati. He says, the response to violence is fear. I'll tell you about the dismay I felt when I saw people hurting each other. They struggled like fish fighting in a dry, drying creek, and I was scared. The world's not stable, everything's in flux. I wanted a place to be safe from change, but there was nowhere. In the end, I was disgusted by their hostility. That's when I saw the barb worked deep into the tissue of their hearts. When that barb pierces someone's heart, she runs first one way, then another. When the barb is drawn out, she neither runs confused nor falls down weary. That just fe- how does that feel different from the Buddha? Taking seven steps and speaking the words of the leader of the herd. How do you? What do you make of that kind of a statement? Well, it seems a lot truer. It feels a lot truer. What? What is it that makes it lot? That makes you think it's truer. Well, it corresponds to my own experience to the extent that I understand it. Yeah. 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 It's pretty interesting how we compare you know, our understanding with a new bit of information. So unless that new bit of information is, you know, the blinding light that strikes you on the, whatever happened to Paul? Road to the Yeah, that's, you know, and then you go, oh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> no. But it is, it is an interesting, it's an interesting bit. You know, when you, when you listen to that, the the feeling of confidence is different. You know what? I, it it feels almost viscerally tact 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 tactic, not tactically. Tactile. Tactical. Tact, yeah, it tactically. Yeah. Yeah. So the te- there's, there's teachings and there's instruction and there's history that's all in this stuff that comes to us. And you know, while some of us, while there's some instruction not to pick and choose, we do pick and choose. And we recognize something as truer or less true. If there's this subjective feeling of objectivity or of truth, and to recognize that feeling so that when it shows up or when it's missing, what is the feeling of doubt about this baby taking steps and proclaiming he's the honored one? there's a physical thing as well as the mental thing, and it's not just, they're not separate. And I wanted to talk about this teaching a little bit. <coughs> this is from the Samyutta Nikaya at Savatthi, Bhikkhus, monks, I do not dispute with the world. Rather, it is the world that disputes with me. <coughs> a proponent of the Dharma does not dispute with anyone in the world. How does that feel? What do you think about that? You don't know? (laughs) You can be certain you don't know. Or are you certain that it's true? Are you certain that... what What is he talking about? What is this dharma? It's not just the only place he says it. In the Mahjama says, a bhikkhu whose mind is liberated sides with none and disputes with none. He employs the speech currently used in the world without adhering to it. How do you translate the word <laughs> dharma? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I take a brain check on that? <laughs> <laughs> The, the word Dharma, if you go to the Pali Dictionary, it's pages and pages. It means a lot of different things. I've heard a lot Okay. Them, so <clears throat> so in, this sense, in this sense, he's talking about his teaching, his dispensation. So he's saying, one who, who follows my teaching doesn't dispute. My teaching doesn't dispute with the world, with anyone in the world in the honeyball, ball with his devas, with the gods, the goddesses, with any person. It's a, it's a, did, did you have a question? Yeah? No, I just, I was just, what you said, I, I, it, what resonated with me was that he was saying that what he believes is very subjective. Uh-huh. What everybody else believes is also subjective. So who is he to refute or deny their beliefs? He's recognizing, yeah, when you talk about it in terms of subjectivity, you can be, you, why dispute with the world? You say, this is this is the way I see it. <clears throat> You're welcome to see it differently, and we can be kind to each other even while we see things differently. Well, yeah. also it sounds like a student of the Dharma aspires to not... Grasping after something mm-hmm. or not being aversive mm-hmm. in the middle path, so you're not disputing with others. Mm-hmm. You're not making a metaphysical claim. Mm-hmm. You're not claiming this is the way it is. Okay. You're claiming instead, this is the way I see it, mm-hmm. this is how I understand it. And so that subjective understanding. Is at the heart of the Buddhist teaching. It's a phenomenological understanding, not a metaphysical one. It's not this is the way things are. You know, I mean, is the sky blue? What do you, What do you think? Is, well, you know, what? I, it's one of those statements that you sort of say, well, yeah, I mean, the sky is blue. But if you actually think, what do we mean by sky? Well, you know, when you look up and there's no Earth in between you and it, that's sky. Is <laughs> he got a better definition? You know, <laughs> and and because uh, if you go up there to look around to explore it, all of a sudden, it at a certain point, it's sort of gone. You know, it's so I don't know what we mean by sky, and what about blue? You know, blue occurs in our neurology. It occurs in our nervous system. It Does it exist without a nervous system as blue? It's pure subjectivity. And, you know, I, I remember, I guess a lot of people, you know, is what I see as red what you see as red? I mean, as kids we wonder about that. And then we sort of skip over it, because <laughs> it's just, but, it's pure subjectivity, pure phenomenology, and, that's, and that was what the Buddha was interested in. How do you not dispute with the world? You don't make metaphysical claims. A proponent of the Dharma does not dispute with anyone in the world. Where is that knowledge, if that's, if that's what he's saying? How do we feel about that? Does it feel impossible? Yeah. <laughs> it feels impossible. Does it not, at some level become objective, though, if, you, if it's presented as a teaching that's followed for thousands of years? Well, does something? Does anything actually ever become objective? No, I don't know that it does. But objective. but we've come know. to feel that it's objective, and it then we make a metaphysic. We make a claim. A solid claim about it. Yeah. Yes. larger life than pure subjectivity. Then. Right. And when somebody doesn't see it the way we see it, because we see it mm-hmm. correctly. Sure. Wow. <laughs> We're not fools. <laughs> it comes to interpretation. Hmm? It all comes to interpretation. Well, you know. And our experiences from the past. It comes to interpretation, and that's an interpretation. Yes. Yes. Now there's an Italian uh, uh, philosopher. His name starts with a G, and all I can think of is Paul Giamatti. It's not Giamatti, <laughs> but uh, but it, but he, you know, he says this is you know, th- there there are no facts, there are only interpretations, and this is an interpretation. Uh, but there are disputes. Within there. There are disputes, but a proponent of the dharma does not dispute with anyone. So, so the, issues, the issues that are issues of dispute may not be issues of dharma. What does that suggest? What do you think? Some unenlightened people. <laughs> well, I, you know, none of those people are probably <laughs> claiming enlightenment either. So, you know, just, just speaking up for, for all those people who are in disputes of one kind or another. You know, disputes are really interesting because they are places where we can find what we cling to, what we think of as objective. And and because the idea here is to learn to explore our experience so that we can navigate it without suffering. You know, we project onto the world from ourselves. Anybody have any complaints? (laughs) Of any kind, justified or not. But you know, the world, but but that's about us. It really is. I mean, look at your, any complaint you have. It's like, for me, it it functions like one of those uh, scuba diving flags, you know, with scuba diver below here, dukkha below. Got a complaint? (laughs) Contending with the world. Yeah. But my problem with it. (laughs) <laughs> is that there's that there is a bottom line. Uh oh. <laughs> there's a bottom line. There's a bottom line. I mean, what's there, that? There, well, there are some ethics, moral behavior precepts that, you know, I know you said they're only for training. They're not absolutes, but there's got to be some point at which uh, disputing in the name of non-harming disputing in the name of justice disputing is is in the name of justice oh my gosh remember what socrates did to to notions like justice well yeah. non-harming killing ah, is something is the precepts or something non-harming why the non-harming is a great i mean because the issue is what is harming how do we know when we're harming you know the guy who did that surgery on the 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 girl in Oakland earlier this year, and she you know her tonsils, and or the guy who did Joan Rivers' surgery. You know, he what? Are you not supposed to do surgery because harm might happen? It was intentional. Ah, that's different. That's different. The intention to not harm is not the same as non-harming. So what is the bottom line here? It's a subjective experience. It's your subjective recognition of your intention. The Buddha said to the Kalamas, they said, Why you know the Kalamas said to him, Why should we listen to you? We had some guy in here last week and we booked we booked this grove for next week. Then we know that everybody says, you know, they're the right ones and everybody else is the wrong ones. And the you know, why should we listen to you? And the Buddha said, you know, you're right. He said, you know, you, this, is, this is, you're perplexed because this is a perplexing issue. And then he says, don't go by tradition and teachers and you know, don't go by your logic, don't go by reasoning. But he said, when you know in your heart that your intention is for the benefit of yourself and others, then go forward. And when you know in your heart, when you recognize that your intention is not, then refrain. So what's the bottom line? It's, 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 you know, complaints. We all have complaints, but the world is the way it is and couldn't be any different from how it is. And a complaint with the world is a dispute with the world. It's a projection of our dissatisfaction. Because what we would complain about, somebody else may be pleased with. Okay, here's what came to my mind, is sir it's a candy mint or is it a breath mint? <laughs> so, you know, that sort of dates me. But, um, you know, disputes, disputes and, and complaints, they reflect our subjective experience. Dukkha is our subjective experience. Complaints are great. Indicators, great flags, dukkha below. The Buddha said the world's pretty little things should be left to themselves. The wise leave them to themselves. You know, I may have said, talked about this before, sugar is not sweet, right? You think sugar is sweet? And the sky is blue. Sweetness is something that happens. When, I mean, sugar is just a pile of chemical, you know? When you put it on your tongue, we get the experience of sweet. Sweet is an, a, a dependently arisen phenomenon. It's not, sweetness is not a quality that inheres in sugar. Blue is the a quality that inheres in the sky, yeah seems like this is all a good argument for not knowing. Well, it's not, that, we, it's not that, that all of our knowing isn't useful. It's that it's our relationship to it that gets us into trouble. So it's, it's, an, it's an argument not for not knowing. You know, one of, the, one of the Zen patriarchs said, if you understand something, all you've got is a concept. If you don't understand it, you've got ignorance. I almost mean it with a blend with what you were saying and not ah, like, yeah, yeah. the heart and and a subtle dance between the two. Yes, the middle path. That's right. Well, the Buddha was about the middle path. It's not that, you know, the mind wants to identify what's going on. It's an automatic process of the mind. I was I was uh, swimming in my pool. I'm not sure how long I'm going to get to keep it in the drought. But I was out in the pool and there were some leaves in the, in the, Corner of the pool and I was taking them out and throwing them out. And all of a sudden, I got a stick in my hand. And my, my brain, I, I watched it. It went, nettles. Why would it go nettles? Well, I'm grabbing, but it discarded nettles, because, you know, there are no nettles in my yard. And then it said, holly. And it did the same thing. But the brain went, nettles, holly. And as I pulled my hand out, I saw the bee. And then it went B, you know <laughs> but the brain was trying to identify I was at the earthquake at, the, at Candlestick Park, you know, and I were out in the bleachers, and the first thing I heard was this roaring, and I thought my brain went oh they 're stamping on the on the bleachers there 's people stamping on the bleachers, and then I thought, train because it started to sway, and then I saw the flagpole, and I thought earthquake. But the, the mind really quickly tries to label and become certain about what's going on. It's part of what we do. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then we, we believe, we attach, and we make, we make it objective. And the, and the Buddha was pretty, interest, pretty much interested. Dukkha is not something you, it's not an objective thing, it's subjective experience. We can recognize it in others. He was interested in the phenomenology of our of our experience, in the subjectivity, the nature of, of, of our experience, suffering and not. So one of the things that we can do is learn to recognize, and we can do it tactily. I, I find that the, the the ability to bring the body into the conversation helpful because we feel physically different about the Buddha takes, I am the best in the world, and um, the world's not stable, everything is in flux. We feel different about those two propositions. And to recognize just where our faith is and to recognize the choices we make because we have to be able to distinguish which lessons to take up and which ones to put aside. If you've got a bottom line, I'm, I'm still ready. Any, any, other, any other comments or thoughts about uh, doubt? and You know, it's a hindrance. As a hindrance, it keeps you from seeing the impermanence the unsatisfactoriness and the insubstantiality of our experience because we don't even know what to make of it. Or else we, we're certain. We can be certain about our subjectivity and we make claims about, about it being objective, then we wind up in contention. That's, you know, a bhikkhu whose mind is liberated does not, sides with none and disputes with none. And we want to find that place in ourselves. That's a, I find that a very useful teaching. Any other thoughts, or comments, or reactions to that? Would you repeat that last statement? Which one? The, the any sentence? any questions or comments? <laughs> <laughs> prior to that. Oh, prior. Know. It's from Majima 7413. Whatever it was you said that was uh, so valuable to you. Oh, just that a, <laughs> a, a bhikkhu whose mind is liberated sides with none and disputes with none. That doesn't mean that you don't, that one whose mind is liberated doesn't assist one who is suffering and doesn't act to attenuate suffering in the world when you find it. We should still vote though, right? (laughs) No, actually I think we should um, choose our president if he recognized the glasses worn in well you know that that's an interesting I, I my my own feeling about that i i i don't i don't believe that that's what happened because i you know if you're willing to believe that he recognized them from a prior life something supernatural extrasensory why not believe that he just read the minds of the monks who knew you know, you got lucky. or yeah, or he could have gotten lucky. We we don't know which candidate he was, and how many objects there were, and actually, I think he picked two items out. It I'm sorry. Well, but there were two items out of a set of six, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But still, I, I mean, there are multiple explanations. Um, He's done a good job. You know, it, it, Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and how would you know a good job? You know, we all think, we all think that we use words in the same way. And then when we say, it, it, this is, Bach is better than Mozart, or the Beatles are better than the Stones. You know, what do we mean? You know, what I mean by better is not the same thing what you mean by better. You know? You know, these words... It's like within you know the 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 way you use a word and the way I use a word have to do with our experience of those concepts, the way we are conditioned, so we interpret our experience differently, and we of course we have exper- different experience we don't know um, but but when we when we someone says isn't isn't that a good idea and you go. How would I know what you think of as a good idea? Good is, but we all think we know. When we're talking about it's good or bad or justice or... So being able to distinguish the subjective and our efforts to objectify... Is, is important. in doubt and confidence. Uh, what can we be confident about? I think I will leave you with that, unless there are any other... I'd like to uh, charge you to go forth and cling no more. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you for listening.